this is like the fifth time I've tried to have this woman on my show. But to, to tell you the truth, it's like the fifth time in two days. Catherine Celery and I have actually, I've had her on the show before, about a year and a half ago. Uh, Conscious Parenting Revolution. She's an amazing guest. She's a brilliant woman. She's got so much to offer. Uh, when we saw each other out there on Podmatch, we were like, okay, let's get this going again. Let's, let's get reconnected and get Catherine on Beyond Risk and back to share her expertise with literally just remaining conscious, the very roots of some of the issues we have with our teens that struggle is the fact that we're going unconscious when we're parenting. We're saying things we don't mean. We're creating power struggles. We're using words that aren't making the situation better. They're making them worse. And we're going to we're going to talk to Catherine and have her get us conscious and help us create a revolution in our homes. The good kind, the the kind where the things go from bad to better, from god awful to great. Welcome to Beyond Risk and Back. I am your host, Aaron Huey. Thank you for joining me on this show. Please listen, like, subscribe, and share Beyond Risk and Back with other parents. And if you love the show, please leave me a review on iTunes. It really does help parents find the show. My guest today from Conscious Parenting Revolution is Catherine Celery. Catherine, finally, welcome to the show. <laughs> Talk about behind the scenes stuff that other people didn't see. It's It's been short of a miracle. It really has. We've had so to appease to many gods. We have, you know, there was a time they wanted us to meet. It was today, it was right now, and we did it and we're here and I'm so excited. Uh, to be back together on the show with you, Aaron. Me too. And I'm really excited that off the air, we've been talking about getting together in person and put some uh, uh, live workshops on for yeah. parents as well, since we are within a, a, a rock's throw of each other if you have a really good arm. Catherine, let's, <laughs> let's talk right away about how and why you created Conscious Parenting Revolution. Thank you. Yeah, totally. I mean, for me, it started when my husband and I started having children and we wanted to have um, a better system in our family than the one we grew up with. Each of us had loving families, but in some ways um, dysfunctional families, in some ways absent families. And there was just a lot of stuff that we didn't want to bring forward. So we needed to up level um, ourselves so that we could up level our own family system and hopefully avoid some of the conflict that we'd experienced and brought us down or brought our siblings down. So yeah, it was a lot about just wanting to be the best moms and dads that we could be. So many moms and dads, you know, we just want to be the best we can. And um, in spite of ourselves, some of the things in our own programming and backwards gets in the way of doing the best job ever. So it was about that. It was really about that. That's what brought me into the field. That's what started me on it. In all the years that you've been doing this, because you guys, you you started your work. 25 years ago. Yeah, yeah. a while back. Let's start by talking about one, like the golden thread that you've seen through all these years that even though times have changed, even mm -hmm. though access to information has changed 25 years ago, we weren't in a global yeah. pandemic 25 years ago. Social media wasn't as so hardcore and rampant, but what is the thing between parents and kids that has not changed that we can go back to and say, despite all the specialty things we need to learn and switch this, we know. 
Okay, I'm so glad you asked that. And um, it really is this idea that we see our children beautiful and we see them beautiful no matter how tragically they're expressing themselves, that we be the one person on the planet that sees our children beautiful no matter what. If we can do that and stay with that heart connection and not listen to the words people say, depersonalize, 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 depersonalize. So when those tragic expressions of their unmet needs appear in those socially unacceptable ways, that we break the habit of going into judgment. Because when we go into judgment, we take ourselves out of wondering, like, God, I wonder what the problem is behind the problem. So all of those signals are problems, of course, and they're socially unacceptable, and they're done in ways that are hard for us to be around, and we'd love to have our children more empowered to express their feelings and underlying unmet needs and go into problem solves and conflict resolution in really sophisticated ways. (laughs) However, um, children don't know how to say my needs for psychological safety and security are not being met. Children don't know how to say my feelings are arising from these profound unmet needs. They don't know how to say it because we didn't learn how to say it. So we get to learn how to connect our feelings to our needs and be able to speak about things in ways other than, well, it's because of looks what they did to me and blaming the outside world, developing our own internal sense of reality that has nothing to do with what other people did to me or said to me that I have choice. Why do we jump to judgment? How come we don't jump to wonder? Why is it easier? Mm -hmm. Is it, is it training? I think it's I think it's easier to judge to do judgment. I think it's training that gets us out of it. I believe that, you know, Krishnamurti said observation without evaluation is the highest form of human intelligence. So we have to be in that state of the observer. And when we're so merged with our own emotional response, we aren't in the state of the observer. We're in the state of being overwhelmed by our own emotions. And there are things that we can do to train ourselves not to be, but it takes training. It takes consciousness around all of these aspects of being triggered to allow us to not let the mind and the dominion of the mind control everything that, you know, activates us and that we're able to break out of it so that we can help our children become centered. Because that's really what we're talking about is being grounded and being centered so that we can be in the world, but not of it, that we can be in the world and present to what's actually happening in the moment right now, right now, but not through that negative view of children lens, because that filter in consciousness that looks at children and literally believes that if I give them an inch, they'll take a mile. They're out to get me. They're you're acting inappropriately. I mean, the language that describes what we're seeing tends to skew us into the land of, well, you deserve to be punished for that young man, young woman. And we're spun out into the land of, it's about what you do to somebody get that gets them to change their behavior. The right reward, the right punishment, it's what we do to people that makes them change. That is a misunderstanding of human behavior, in my opinion. I don't think it's about what we do to other people that makes them change. I think it's about the atmosphere that we create. And if we create the atmosphere and the ecosystem for change to occur, it happens. And what we want to do that then is to connect. Connection is the answer. Connection is like the the secret sauce. Everything happens through connection. And if we can see our children beautiful when they're falling apart, and we can believe in them when they don't, and they can look in our eyes and we can say, you got this. And we know in our heart of hearts that our kids have this. 
they'll start to believe in themselves. So some of it is a crisis in confidence. Some of it is a not believing. It really is rooted in self-esteem. And then when the solid self-esteem, self sense of self isn't present, we start looking to other things to make us feel okay about ourselves. We're seeing situations going on with teenagers now, and it's been all over the internet uh, in the past couple of days that unfortunately there was another school shooting in Texas. Um, And watching the film footage that the children in that high school shot walking down the halls as they're filming with their hands up, holding their phones in their hands, filming the hallways full of armed police officers who had showed up to protect them, to combat any violence that could have been put on the kids. As there's one footage of police officers, the door opens and the officer says, police officers, everybody get your hands up. I'm knocking over this barricade. The police officer knocks over the barricade. Three officers walk in in full body armor, semi-automatic rifles. First thing out of the mouth after they make sure all the kids are there, is everybody okay? And you hear the trauma in the kids' voices responding when they're saying, yeah, like there's, and, and I say trauma, it's not fear and anxiety, it's a numbness. We're dealing with an environment that again, when I, when I asked about 25 years ago, when you first started, what's changed? Catherine, mm. I never had to practice a live shooter drill, nor have I ever been able to capture film footage of a shooter in my school with that phone in my pocket. It's such a different world. Do parents need to keep that in mind when they're doing this? Or is consciousness, as you teach it, something that's going to help us handle all things? So, you know, um, I did a few TED Talks, and one of the TED Talks I did was entitled, The Rebellion is Here, We Created It, and We Can Solve It. So it really is this understanding that, you know, like you said, I've been in Hong Kong for 32 years. My kids were born and raised in Hong Kong. They didn't even come to the United States other than for a summer vacation until they both went to university in the U.S. They both went to schools in California. And two years ago, three years ago now, when my daughter started, she was at the University of Southern California, USC, and I came here to Denver. And within like two months... I got a notice on my phone saying that there was a suspected shooter on campus at USC and they were in lockdown. God. So I was the mom on the other side of the phone call. As you said, like you and I, I think we're probably close in age. Like this was not part of the ecosystem for us. And my experience was that with the USC situation, first of all, it was a mistake. There wasn't a shooter on campus, but they did all the protocols And I was calling for three hours trying to get through to my daughter who was locked up somewhere underground and perfectly safe and calm and all the rest of it. But I was in freak out. And I noticed that a lot of other people around me were saying things like, can you believe another school shooting? And that there was something about it that was almost like routine. It was like part of our ecosystem now. And my perspective, having been out of this country for 30 years was, Oh my God. Oh my God. Oh my God. We're in a state of emergency. This can never become our new norm. We cannot respond to these things in anything other than like shock. Like this can't be our new norm. And I'm still in that place. So, oh my God. Oh my God. Oh my God. We have to change the ecosystem. 
So I'll be curious to learn more about what happened with this kid. And what I can say, based on my two and a half years now of being really interested in this, and like what's happened to our country is that it's a tragic expression of an unmet need, a terribly tragic expression of an unmet need. And that I'm not sure what those unmet needs are, but it's resulted in this level of tragedy that this person would go to this extreme. I like to say people don't start by swinging from the chandeliers. If they're in the, the level and taking a gun and shooting is swinging from a chandelier, they have been signaling and dropping breadcrumbs. This is not where they started. This is where they've ended up. Those breadcrumbs, and we can talk about the shooting at Columbine, those breadcrumbs with those boys of being socially isolated and bullied had been dropped over years. It didn't start where it ended. Right. It ended because people didn't recognize the, the signs, the signals, the cues, the clues. If we'd been able to pick up on those earlier, early intervention, getting to the upside, it's about prevention. It's about recognizing social isolation, bullying. It's about recognizing the kids that don't feel like they belong. It's about recognizing how if you don't have the skills to regulate your emotions, you go straight into behavior. The more skills that we can provide, the more social and emotional skills we can provide, the better it is at being able to articulate what's going on for me. But if I don't have those skills, I just go into the behaviors that reveal how upset I am, how mad I am, how angry I am, how hurt I am. And those are those school shooters. They're angry, they're hurt, they're misunderstood, and they're tragically expressing it. And the cost is massive to society. And it could be any one of our kids that could end up in any one of those positions, the shooter, the shootee. Anybody could be there if they don't have the skills to regulate their emotions and to advocate for their inner sense of peace. So this is why, yeah, we have to become conscious. It's, it's urgent. We can't afford not to. Because in the world that we live in, it's no longer about having a grudge and feeling upset. It's that there are lethal measures that people can take when they're that hurt, that upset, and they're acting out of their pain. Do you have a sense as to why parents miss it? Is it because we are all so caught up in the fact that we don't know? Is it because we're living in a society that, that doesn't value emotional intellect? Are we just too busy trying to pay our mortgage? It, because it always seems to be like, well, I didn't have those skills either. It's like the conversation doesn't stop there. Like it begins there. But why, why is consciousness around what's going on emotionally as parents, as community members, why is that the last thing we look at? Not the first. I had an interesting conversation with someone not too long ago who I met um, in a network that I'm in. He said, um, I'm really concerned that school districts are putting a wedge between families. Um, and I said, I don't know what you're talking about. Can you give me some context? And I said, you know, I've been out of the country for a really long time. I'm, my kids grew up in, you know, Hong Kong in completely different school districts. I really don't know. Oh, well, for heaven's sakes, one of the things that's really, you know, worrying me is that they're going to be talking about feelings in my son's class. <laughs> and I kind of did this. I was like leaning in like, okay. And? And and it was a window into someone's, I'm going to say into their soul. Sure. And, and it really, I mean, what it brought up for me were tears. 
that someone had grown up in a family system where feelings were supposed to be ignored, denied, or dangerous, that you don't talk about them, that there is a mindset that the problem is that we even, even acknowledge that we have these feelings, that we should just know how to behave. And that part of the problem is that there's too much time talking about feelings and educating people in feelings. I, I, I'm still struggling to understand it, but I do know this much. I do know that there's a huge segment of our transgenerational trauma in families and in society where it's only been about do as you're told and behave the way you're supposed to and show up and look right. So don't you embarrass me, young man, young woman. Don't you make me embarrassed. And that focuses everything on just having the right appearances. Those are families like mine, which were highly dysfunctional. There was absolutely nothing, no space in the room for anyone's feelings but the parents' feelings. And they were the only one who were entitled to have feelings and needs. Everybody else was just supposed to do as they were told and figure it out. <laughs> but there was no open conversation about, well, what, what's going on for you, you know, in, in your life? And how are you feeling? And, you know, even understanding what needs were was anathema, had, had no clue. I had to learn all of it. Like, you know, coloring, you know, I had to learn like, how, where's the crayons and like, here's the paper. And I don't think I'm alone in that. And I think if you haven't had the journey yet, then even talking about feelings can be scary. Where we know emotional regulation is based on your ability to name it, tame it. The more granular you are, the more successful you're going to be. The more language you have to describe what's happening internally gives you more tools and more capacity to actually regulate your emotions. The ability to really even know or have a fluency in what your underlying needs are is the secret sauce to break the habit of blaming the external event as the cause of your feelings rather than the catalyst, which it is actually. But even, even knowing any of this is something I think that's rare. I don't believe it's it's garden variety family systems of origin kind of content. Right. Nobody talks about it at families. Nobody talks about it at school. Do you believe that there is a difference in parenting the the millennials versus the the you know the the I Gen or Gen Zers, however people uh, determine that they should be referenced and that, and can you, do you foresee any changes into the next generation that's coming up? Yeah. I mean, I do think that there may have been a tendency in some of the generations of parenting to go from the authoritarian to the permissive. Gen X is really, yeah. I look at, I look at Gen Xers and I'm one of them. I just look across and I'm like, I thought we used to say, we're not gonna take it. Looks like we're letting pretty much everything happen here. Like I don't, it blows me away. Yeah. And that, that level of permissiveness, it's interesting because there is research around, um, which is healthier being a permissive parent or being an authoritarian parent. And ironically, I kind of surprised by the research myself, authoritarian parents create a healthier ecosystem, even <laughs> as dysfunctional as it is, than a permissive parent. My my parents are gonna love to hear that. They will, they were like, I told you. Right? 
And so, you know, what does that tell us? It tells us that children who grow up in permissive families, there is something about that that's communicating that you don't matter enough to me for me to come in and weigh in with my rules. Right. Enforce them, and I don't and trust you to have your own boundaries. I don't trust you to figure things out. It's my way, or it's the highway, kiddo. Yeah. So the my way or the highway is activating retaliation, rebellion, and resistance. The three R's. Seventy-five percent of behavioral disruptions are the three R's. Say those so again. Seventy-five percent retaliation, rebellion, and resistance. They're called the three R's. And it was Thomas Gordon's research. He was nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize three times, understanding that actually these are the ways that we activate all of those secondary problems. So I would say, I'm just going to say it, I would say school shootings are secondary problems. They're not the primary problem. They're retaliation, rebellion, and resistance. They are the three R's. So that has been activated by how primary problems have been dealt with. If you deal with primary problems, without activating the three R's, then you keep your problems limited to the underlying unmet needs rather than activating all this other stuff that you then spend all your time dealing with. I had somebody today, I was doing um, a reboot in my private Facebook group. And one of the parents was talking about their teenager who said, you know, I'm just so tired, mom. I don't want to get up. It was like seven o'clock in the morning this morning today. And she said, it's okay, go ahead, I'll take you to school. Go ahead and sleep in. So then she went and wake him up an hour later and he wouldn't get out of bed. He was still like, just, no, I won't go to bed. And I knew just a little bit about, you know, ADHD diagnosis. That's the only thing I really knew, but that's enough for me to just guess that school is not a happy place for this kid. That chances are when he goes to school, I would say it's psychologically unsafe. He experiences himself as inadequate. He compares himself to other students. He's always being criticized and made to believe there's something wrong with him. He's got ants in his pants. Ants in his pants. He can't sit down for you know long stages. Are you talking about me and my mom? Because because <laughs> you're literally describing my childhood. Okay, so then that to me means this child's resistance to get out of bed is healthy. Because why would anyone put their child in a psychologically unsafe situation where they're made to feel there's something wrong with them? Maybe inconvenient for mom to have to face the bigger primary underlying issue. Gosh, face the bigger underlying issue because sending that child back to school to be feeling badly about himself day after day after day isn't healthy. You're, you're, you're literally saying if we could only take a moment as parents to look at the behavior, no matter how inconvenient inconvenience it is to the parent at why it's insightful. Like what yeah. is insightful about this moment? Now you're dealing with a parent whose kid has snuck out of the house. They got uh, caught outside the 7-Eleven. Their backpack's full of weed. Um, they It's all separated into multiple baggies. And so now they're in jail. They've called you at home. You didn't even know they were gone. But now in your pajamas, you're on your way to the police station to pick up your drug dealing kid. And your mind is racing. And in that moment, the last thing you want to be is... What is insightful about my child's behavior? Because you, it's it's beyond inconvenience, right? Yeah. It's traumatizing. 
Sure. So how do we go from, and I have a few questions about trauma and resilience. How do we go from being a traumatized parent to an insightful parent? What are, what, what's my first step? Let's just start with the first step. So it's a little bit like, you know, we were just talking about the incident with the school shooter. Sure. Of course, obviously, when it's gotten to this point, there have been lots of signals. Right. And the signals have been missed. And here's the thing, and I just want to say this so clearly because any parent who's out there blaming themselves, it's not, it's not, it's not a good approach. <laughs> Self-blame is not going to help us here. And it's so easy for parents to slip into self-blame and become so remorseful that it's hard to take a step. And I don't think there's a parent out there who hasn't had moments where they've regretted that they didn't see the signs about something. Of course. I have regretted it. Of course, I have I'm incredibly trained. And so people who are incredibly trained also don't see things. You can't see what you can't see until you see it. Right. So that's part of it is that how could I miss the signs? How could I not have known? My daughter, I'll tell a self-disclosing story. My daughter has an eating disorder that she told us about. And I didn't know. It had gone on for a year. And I didn't know why. Because all the classic signs of an eating disorder child are great grades, perfectionists, you know, show up, meet everybody's expectations. On time. Yeah. All this, all this stuff. The good child syndrome. Absolutely. Yeah. And so I look back on that year of her life. And I, first of all, thank God she had the gumption to tell us and that we were able to intervene after a, only a year, which in eating disorder land is not much and get her the support she needed um, and did I look back and think, shame on me, shame on me. I should have known. I should have known. I, I did. I went through that process. And honestly, now I know. Now I know. Now I'm able to help other people and help them with their you know, situations. But I didn't know. And so moms, dads who didn't know, God bless you. You didn't know what you didn't know. You know now. Great. And you can... Mourn what you didn't know. I mourned. And you can have that experience, and I suggest you do, of true mourning. Of, I wish I had. And then move forward into, okay, this is the tragic expression of some unmet needs. This is a solution to an underlying problem. What's the problem that this is a solution for? And if we can, you know, take those deep breaths long enough to be able to step back from just that instinctive, Oh my God, how could you have done this? What's wrong with you? You're grounded for the rest of your life. I mean, all of those kind of responses that activate the three R's, distance you, break the relationship, then yes, of course, the problem needs to be resolved. And it's going to happen by resolving the problem behind this problem. What I love about having Catherine on the show is that no matter which way the conversation goes, and when you're dealing with kids and families in crisis, that conversation literally becomes a chase me game of results and actions and feelings that are all just jumbled and mixed up. And I'm not talking about the kids and my parents. I'm talking about what it's like for you when 
Before this episode, I was working with two different families on discovery calls for, for coaching and they're, they're navigating, trying to navigate through what they're going through at home. It's just another, it's utter chaos. And we reach out for coaching because in those moments, someone goes, wow, yeah, okay. <gasps> take that breath. Let's, let's take a moment here. Now, here's some tools. So these are the tools that I want to offer you, parents. I want you to go to brabapp.com, B-R-A-B-A-P-P.com, and download my parent teaching masterclass. It is so unbelievably affordable because I want every parent to be able to grab it and go and to not have to wonder if this is going to get in the way of the mortgage. I promise you it's not. When you see the price, you're going to be like, oh, he meant it. Brabapp.com, B-R-A-B, for Beyond Risk and Back, of course. Brabapp.com. It's 56 classes. Some are three minutes long. Some are 30 minutes long. But it's everything I have ever taught parents. It comes in three different areas, the red, the yellow, the green. The red is for the beyond risk families. It's, it's gotten really bad. We, we got you. The yellow is for the at risk families. It could go either way. It could go bad or it, it could go back to green. So let's address how we get it from yellow to green. And then the green courses are course. Kids are doing okay but you know this kid's a world changer. You know things could be great. And none of these classes are about what the kid should or should not be doing. It's about what the parents can do differently. Because everything we've done have got us to, everything we've done has gotten us to this moment, right here, right now. Download the app, fill your toolbox with things you can do as a parent differently. Let's get these kids to green. Because parents, for that one price, you get all three courses. Go to brabapp.com. I'll see you on the other side. Let's get back to Catherine. We, a lot of parents want to go down this cul-de-sac of what they have done already and how they got to this point. Have I enabled my child? Am I codependent with my child? In your opinion, does that matter? Does that help? Does the assessment process of everything we did up until this moment help? I wrote down what signals did I miss? Because when you said that, I was like, what a potent question. But is it necessary? Yeah, I think it is. Um, not from a blame-shame place at all, but from a learning place. Nice. Because if we can learn, you know, it's kind of like children have a tell. Yeah, you know, in poker, like people have their tells. Everybody's got to tell. It's the basic. It's a basic of body language. It is, and so if you understand your children's ways that they're signaling to you that they're in distress, then you have the opportunity to um, intervene. So again, you know, I, I I remember my son when he was in middle school. He was getting a lot of calls from girls because he was good at listening. Because, you know, he kind of grew up in this family that was all about listening. And he'd learned the skill. And so, of course, all the girls liked him. And there was this girl that would call him up. And she, he would say, Mom, I'm not home. I'm not home. And I would be like, okay. And then I said to him, you know, what are you going to do about this? Right? And he's like, I don't know, Mom. But she's just driving me crazy. And I was like, okay. So I was running a course near the kid's school at a club that we belong to in Hong Kong. And 
um, I was chatting with my husband after the class was over and he said, yeah, you know, I got a fun, funny call from Sam. He wanted me to buy him a ticket, um, two tickets to the movie so he could take this girl. And that was so strange because he was dodging her phone calls all the time. So he came by the, the club and I said, you know, Sam, your dad told me that you wanted to take her to the party and, or to this, this movie. He said, yeah. I said, oh, well, it seems uh, so funny because you're always dodging her calls. Are you sure you really want to do this? And he says to me, oh, God, no, mom. I just don't know how to say no to her because she told me if I didn't take her, she was going to kill herself. Oh, God. Oh, I, I get Catherine. I please talk about that because there, I so many parents on this call know that moment right there. First thing was that the only thing that told me that there was a story that needed to be told was just that this was out. It was out of the blue and it didn't make sense. It was out of context that that just was so strange. Yeah. So there was something about it that indicated to me that. Sam wasn't telling me something and there was a struggle going on. It was just one of those little tiny clues, but I picked up the breadcrumb and that's why these breadcrumbs are important. And that's why it's important to go back to figure out what your, your kids do. Do they get really quiet? Do they lie to you? Because lying is a cue and a clue. It's not good, bad, right, wrong. It's just evidence that there's something that they can't tell you. So if you can't create the environment in your home where your children can tell you the truth, they will lie to you. So the answer, of course, is, well, we have to work on our communication skills so that we can create a culture where people can say the truth, even if it's upsetting, and they don't feel like they're going to get in trouble for telling the truth, in which case they're not going to tell it to you. <laughs> so we have to go to truth telling. And what is required for us to tell the truth in our family systems? Is that acceptable or not? So then you have a child in seventh or eighth grade, very young. Yeah who's up against, if you don't do it, I'm going to kill myself. So this girl is like mastered the art of manipulation. She knows he's a softy. She knows she can manipulate him because he doesn't know what to do now. He's in freak out. I have to do what she wants me to because otherwise she's going to harm herself and I can't be responsible for her actions. And you and I know that manipulation is a sign of crisis. Anything, Absolutely. anybody who's manipulating an environment is manipulating an environment they don't feel safe in. But he's in seventh grade. <laughs> exactly. He's in seventh grade. It's not his job to be responsible for her feelings. Right. He doesn't know how to handle this information. And it wouldn't have even come up if I hadn't brought up the conversation. So just the fact that I was tuned in and conscious enough to be able to pick up on this inconsistency, to be able to bring it out and give him an opportunity, I was able to say to him, okay, sweetie, you can always blame me. So you can always blame me. And that's something that I gave my kids the opportunity to do if they needed an out. And so my daughter would call me from school and say, just say no and hang up. And I didn't even know what she meant. But then a little while later, I'd get a call from her and she'd be with a bunch of girls and she'd say, you know, I really, really, really want to go. And I knew she had this entire audience and I would just say, I'm sorry, no. <laughs> and then she could go, oh my God, you always say no. And she could put the game on. And I was like, I'm so sorry, but it's a no, it's a solid no. And then she'd get home and say, thanks, mom. <laughs> right? But in terms of her social currency, she could blame it on her mom. And that way she was able to be able to continue to be in the group 
where she wasn't safe to do whatever they wanted to do. And she could blame it on me. I'm happy to play that role all day long. So I said to Sam, look, sweetie, you can blame it on your mom. You can call her up and say, I just found out about this and that I'm not okay with it. And that I think you're too young to be taking her to the movies and you can just make it all about me, which is what he did do in the end. And then on the other hand, I was able to speak to the school counselors and say, I'm a concerned parent. I don't know this family well enough to do anything myself, but I'm a concerned parent. And I want you to know that this is a child in distress and she needs help. And we have to, as parents, be willing to be those parents, to make the hard decisions, to make the tough phone calls, because... Because we, we wish that somebody had done it done for our it for child. us. That's exactly right. Catherine, talk about talk about how parents can find you. And once they do find you, what do you have for them once they show up to ConsciousParentingRevolution.com? ConsciousParentingRevolution.com. And once you get to me, join my newsletter. Every single week I write a blog. So there's like a couple of years worth of blogs there on everything from social media and addiction to social isolation to you name it. I mean, and if I haven't thought of it, send me send me something and I'll write a blog on it. Tell me what to write. <laughs> yeah, tell me what your query is and we'll talk about what a conscious parent approach would be. Because what this is about is guidance and conflict resolution. What this is about is how to really address those underlying unmet needs rather than be in reaction or response to socially unacceptable, tragic expressions of unmet needs. So I've got all of the free material. I've got a free ebook. I've got some videos. I've got a bunch of stuff there. And for people who are looking for training, I've got my own 90-day parenting reset, which is an interactive weekly coaching call three training videos that you watch on your own, my own workbook exercises. And it's the community and the coaching and the support and the training and the education to be able to deal with tricky situations and all situations differently than just knee-jerk habituated responses that activate the three R's that put you in more trouble and more disconnection so that you can actually get to the issues and solve them in ways that bring you close together. Do you got social media handles or do you want people just to find you on uh, ConsciousParentingRevolution.com? I do. I have all those social media handles and I'll send them to you if you want to put them in your um, in your notes. Great. That people are able to access us on Insta and Facebook and all the places out there in social media land. So, Catherine, we we need to set up a, a coffee date to start figuring Can't out. Wait. And I, I think both of us bring in a couple of names to the table of a just a true parenting summit here in Colorado to, to just really support. So I'm so yes. in. I admire yes. you so yes. much. Thank and I'm so just falling in love with too. your work. It's incredible. Me too. I'm so happy to be here. I'm so happy you're alive and you're doing the work you do and taking care of the people you take care of because it takes a village. It takes everybody. It takes all of our support. Every time I talk to Catherine, this this parenting consciousness, what that means, how that feels in those moments that we have with our kids that aren't just this knee-jerk reaction. I've taught for years that it, it starts with prime influence and that turns into what we experience from those prime influencers which turns into our thoughts we think about the world what we experience from it and that turns into our feelings we feel what we think 
And those feelings turn into actions and then those turns into results that we have. But somewhere between feeling and action, there's supposed to be a gap. We are supposed to develop a gap between what we feel and what we do as adults. But here's the thing, kids don't possess that gap. So we expect children to act on what they're feeling. And as parents, we're gonna continue to model that, that that's what we do as adults, unless we say, wow, I'm really scared. I'm really pissed. I'm really fatigued. I'm hungry. I haven't drank water in six hours. And then we take a minute and decide how we're going to parent. Because either we create our family, we create our relationship with our child, or our relationship with our child creates us. I want to thank Deepin Productions for producing this podcast and making it sound so good and creating this music that I love. Check this out. I love this song. And I want to thank Your Cause Consulting for putting cause behind the marketing and making sure that the show is getting in front of all the parents who actually need this show. Parents, take care of yourselves first, your adult relationship second, and your children third. Because in that way, you're going to do your best work with children. So to take care of yourself, I want you to head over to ConsciousParentingRevolution.com right now and go meet Catherine. Get to know her as I have. I'll see you next week.